This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. It takes a lot of hard work to make it look easy. This Mother's Day, Duluth Trading Co. can help you give her something that keeps up. Whether you prefer to shop online or in-store, Duluth has a motherload of gear, goods, and gifts to keep her comfortable and capable, no matter what needs doing. With Duluth's problem-solving details and legendary durability to boot, you'll finally be mom's favorite again. Check out DuluthTrading.com for all your Mother's Day gifting needs. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So welcome to the BBC Music Magazine podcast, heralded in this month by a brand new set of specially commissioned jingles composed by Christopher Maxim, sung by members of Bristol's Exaltate Singers. And you'll hear a few more of them peppered throughout the show, so we really hope you enjoy them. The first one, obviously, in the style of Thomas Tallis. So before we get started, a quick reminder to head to our website at classical-music.com where you can read all about the latest music happenings, read reviews of thousands of recordings and enjoy our free download of the week amongst much else, plus we're on unusual social media channels. And don't forget that our May issue, Fresh Off The Presses, is out now. So with me in the studio, as usual, are Deputy Editor Jeremy Pound, Reviews Editor Rebecca Franks and Editorial Assistant Freya Parr. Hello. Hello. Hi. So let's get on with the show. So yes, it's time for music news. Freya, what's caught your eye this month? Um, well, there's been a pretty uh, momentous uh, lawsuit against the Royal Opera House, which a classical musician has finally won. Um, so it's Christopher Goldscheider, a viola player, was exposed to very intense noise levels in the pit at Covent Garden. Um, to the extent that he can no longer listen to or perform music. Um, and his son is actually the young musician finalist from 2016, Ben Goldscheider. Um, so Christopher can't even listen to him play anymore. So he's been irreparably damaged for life. Um, and we haven't received the final payout details, but um, he has won against the Opera House. It's a tough one, though, isn't it? Um, orchestra pits. Um, I mean, this, you know, you, you're in a very confined space, aren't you? I mean, you've got noises blaring around, especially brass. You know, can imagine what it's like in Wagner operas. I mean, this is 
loud music. Trouble is that um, law is all about precedence, and once a judge, judgment has been set, it could have a very significant ramifications for for future performance requirements. Yeah, I mean, I don't know the legal terms, but you know, if it's an occupational hazard or not, whether it is if you're an orchestral musician. But then you kind of one of my thoughts was: are, is music getting louder as instruments? I mean, how much has changed in recent years? But certainly, they're probably louder now than they would have been in Wagner's time, mm. and whether that needs to be taken into account as well, whether actually it is, you know, it's caused damage. That's a serious matter. Well, the sound levels were 137 decibels, which is significantly higher than any kind of general rehearsal situation. And I think it must have been for quite an intensely long period of time because they were doing the Wagner ring cycle. Well, they usually compare decibel levels to the noise of a jumbo jet or something. Yeah, well, I think it was uh, a jet engine 100 feet away. (laughs) So... Well, I wonder why they have earplugs. I mean, yeah, is I that mean, really impossible to have earplugs? Well, I don't I know when you're playing, but something, you know, something. Well, I think it's difficult to do anything with earplugs, isn't it? Because you need yeah. your, your sense of balance and location as well as your sort of feedback. Back for what playing, you're playing. Yeah, as a Yes, because you say if you're going to shut out the sound of the brass behind you, you're also going to shut out the sound of your own viola playing in front of you. So it's, it's not an ideal situation. I don't know how I even heard myself play, to be honest. So I think it's just a question of simply watching this space and uh, seeing if this is indeed a precedent for future cases. So I'm going to move on to my story, and as a clue, here's a piece of music. So you probably guessed that was an extract from Bernstein's Dances from West Side Story, played by the Simon Bolivar Youth Orchestra, conducted by Gustavo Dudamel. Um, and the clue is that uh, the founder of El Sistema, which was the sort of birth of the Simon Bolivar Youth Orchestra, Jose Abreu, has died. Um, a wonderful man who basically brought uh, music to the streets of Venezuela. And his influence, uh, El Sistema's influence, uh, seemed to sort of spread worldwide to the extent that Scotland set up its own El Sistema. So this is, um, you know, the sad, uh, obviously, announcement that Ebreu has died, but what a legacy. I mean, goodness me, what, what an effect he's had on, 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 on world music. Yes, not just on music, but also on, on kind of sociological issues in Venezuela itself. Because the reason why he set it up is that the way school works in Venezuela um, is that you have lessons until lunchtime, and then at that point, kids kind of drift off and do what they want. And loads of kids were going out into the streets of Caracas and other cities, getting involved in crime. And Abreu actually set up this system to give them something to do rather than just hang around and get involved in gangs, etc. And, and so it started off small scale in Caracas and then grew and grew and grew. And soon every town had its own local music centre. And then they developed orchestras, which formed into youth orchestras. And then you had all came together into this one big orchestra, 
which then achieved worldwide fame when it toured as the Simon Bolivar Youth Orchestra. And of course, Gustavo Dudamel, now the principal conductor of the Los Angeles Philharmonic. So, you know, great things can have come from uh, that one small seed that was planted back in the 70s. And I think there might have been a sort of more backlash in recent years or criticism and scrutiny of what's been going on. But ultimately, there was, this really did seem to be a really good, like a really good news story and a real kind of... Um, just very inspiring to see the, the power of classical, what power music can have and classical music can have. And fair enough that it's come under scrutiny. A lot of but. the scrutiny and backlash wasn't Abreu's fault, though, because um, he set it up long before Hugo Chavez came into power. And Hugo Chavez did use it as something, as a, as a political tool. Um, but that was nothing to do with the original system itself. So it's the sister El Sistema itself is not a sort of Chavez government or anything like that. So whichever way you feel about Chavez policies, El Sistema has actually not got anything to do with it. And it has, as you say, a really big impact, you know, really inspired I mean, a lot look of at people. Their, well, look at their appearance at the proms when they all appeared in the colours of the Venezuelan flag and, uh, you know, they were moving to the music. I mean, this was performance that the proms, even the proms, uh, had not really seen before. And, and, and the tickets sold out in three hours, I think. Something extraordinary. So pop concert type speed of sales. Rebecca, what's your news story? So the story that I saw was that... Um, the Paris Opera, Paris Opera House, has signed up to help Saudi Arabia set up a national orchestra and opera house, um, which just, it's just been signed, so there's nothing kind of more than that at the moment, but it's part of a kind of wider programme that seems to be going on at the moment in Saudi Arabia to kind of diversify their oil-based economy into entertainment and culture. Um, but obviously... Uh, there are a lot of kind of cultural issues there to to think about. And I think it's just interesting that the, an orchestra and an opera house have been chosen uh, a part of this programme, really. Mm, absolutely. There, there is a real sort of um, culture now of, of countries sort of spreading the word, uh, especially European countries, spreading their word abroad, you know, helping other people sort of explore Western culture, I suppose. It's, it's a diplomatic move, isn't it, as much as anything, I think. Yeah, I wondered how much is a status symbol, um, how much, yeah, how much is a kind of soft kind of cultural power that's, that's going on. It's like Jeremy said with El Sistema, though, even if there's a political stance to it or slight shift in the, you know, they're opening up, their, they're looking out internationally. I think ultimately if they're allowing people to engage more in classical music and culture, I think that's no bad thing. If Crown Prince Mohammed is, um, he's a lot more liberal than previous uh, people in his position and actually I think uh, he is changing the image of Saudi Arabia in I think a positive way. Mm. I mean but you know I, I always question what the audience outreach would be out there you know whether it would be for the mega rich or whether it's something that will be uh, intended for everyone. Well I guess it depends as well who the players are with yeah. the opera house you know for example Oman has an opera house but everybody a lot of people come in the end of Bavarian state opera has been there, Joyce Donato has been there, people go in to perform there. Mm. Um, but I think they've also set up an orchestra, their own orchestra in Oman with Omani players. So I, I guess it depends what form it takes as well. Mm. The BBC Music Magazine so indeed, you're listening to the BBC Music Magazine podcast and we're still on our news stories. Jeremy, let's have yours. Well, we call mine a news story. The more I read about it, the more I wonder how much of a news story it is. 
I think basically it seems to be like a sort of hissy fit turned news story. Um, in short, when composer Mark Anthony Turnage's new chamber opera for children, Coraline, um, was premiered at the Barbican, the critics were not universally kind about it. Um, and one or two of the reviewers, noticeably Rupert Christensen in The Telegraph, gave it a bit of a stinker, at which point um, all hell broke loose on social media. Um, and to wrap it up in a nutshell, you had the critics on one side supporting each other, saying Rupert Christensen was fine to say this, whereas the, a lot of the singers said, well, actually, no, critics shouldn't be saying this. And there was, it was almost like gang warfare on, on Twitter. Um, and Hugh Canning of the Sunday Times also backed up Rupert Christensen. But eventually um, it, it led to Mark Antington saying, right, well, I'm not going to write any more operas. Mm. And everyone went, oh, wow, gosh. But then it turns out that he'd planned not to write more, any more operas anyway, so it had nothing to do with the Twitter row. Yeah. And if you go and try and find this argument on Twitter now, it's all been eradicated. Everyone's kind of deleted all their tweets and sort of, I think they probably <laughs> agreed mm. to call a truce. I, th- I think, I think the, the, the question here is not whether people should write stinky reviews, and of course they should, um, but obviously the right language can be employed, you know. But I think it's following up that review and going on Twitter using the very small character allowance that you have um, and, 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 and trying to def- either defend your review or try and sort of be some sort of bridge between audience and artists. And, and, and you know, composers shouldn't go on either, no. you know, shouldn't react to, to reviews. Everyone's open to an awful lot of criticism. It's just not a great thing to do, I don't think. I have also slight worries about critics backing each other up on Twitter. Um, you always get like to have this idea that Twitter's a very independent people and don't kind of hang around in little pack, even if they do, and that they don't share each other's views. The moment they actually start to defend each other's views on Twitter, you actually kind of break down that concept of independence and you kind of wonder if they are this little cabal. I think a lot of critics didn't comment on Twitter, yes, though, as well. Is, yeah. <laughs> there were a lot of people who did kind of step away from Twitter and just yeah. say, right, I'm not going to not going to comment, not going to be part of it. There were a lot of um, interesting sort of questions about what constitutes a critic and also what is the role of a critic? You know, what are they there to do? You know, and if that kind of debate can be opened up once in a while, why not? But I don't think Twitter is the place to do it. It's not a great forum for in-depth discussion. Also on Twitter, everyone is a critic. So when you kind of open up these platforms, I think people forget sometimes it is a public platform. And actually when people have put their journalism into the world, sometimes it should, I think it sometimes should just be left as that piece. And then... It's a very, yeah, it's a very different thing writing a piece for a newspaper that's been through, you know, it's been through an editor. You've thought about your, (laughs) the words you're going to to say and it's, it's there as a piece of criticism and a report on an event. Whereas an throwaway remark on Twitter that you probably wouldn't say to that person's face but you sort of have this, you know, you think it's a kind of chatty medium. It's just a completely different thing. I agree. We had exactly the same kind of thing about three years ago with the famous dumpy gate row about Tara Rort umpiring in, in Strauss. Um, mm. And again, why don't just write your piece and then leave it. Don't bother going back onto Twitter to defend it. Once yes, you take a bit, just leave it. Yes, and also to say that Dumpicate wasn't your word. That was a word that was actually used by one of the critics exactly. in one of the reviews. Um, important to make that point. <laughs> um, but however, we love Twitter, and please do visit our uh, Twitter <laughs> handle, at Music Magazine. Right, shall we move on? Yes. <laughs> yes. 
And with that very Halsian jingle, um, let's move on to this month's magazine, of course. And uh, hot story this month in the May issue, which is out now, is, of course, the BBC Music Magazine Awards, which took place at King's Place on the 5th of April. And our recording of the year, which was, drum roll, please, Mahler's Symphony No. 3, conducted by Bernard Heitink, featuring the orchestra of the Bavarian Radio. Um, wonderful recording. Uh, Bernard Heitink's fourth recording of this wonderful symphony, but he seems to have risen to new heights, takes us on a journey. I mean, let's not forget this symphony is one of the longest that was, I mean, at the time, it was the longest symphony that was composed, still ranks along among the longest, but it just seems so beautifully told in this recording. Um, very, very deserving um, winner and a live recording too. So a real achievement. Yeah, and I guess it's also that continuing appetite for Mahler symphonies. You know, this is one of the three shortlisted discs and then won by public vote and then was voted by the critics as recording of the year. And I think Mahler symphonies still have people really want to hear them. Mm-hmm. Let's hear an extract. So that was an extract from the second movement of Mahler's Symphony Number no. 3. As I say, our recording of the year, uh, recorded by the Bavarian Radio Symphony Orchestra, choirs, soloists, including the wonderful mezzo, Gehild Romberger, conducted by the 89-year-old Bernard Heitink. Wonderful recording. And you can read all about that particular recording and all the other winners, all the other uh, nine winners in BBC Music Magazine out now. Freya, what have you got to tell us about this month's mag? So BBC Young Musician has kicked off uh, and they are celebrating their 40th anniversary this year. Um, So we've marked the occasion by sending Clemency Burton-Hill to meet four of the winners from over the years. Um, So we have Nicholas Daniel, who won in 1980 uh, as an oboist, clarinetist Emma Johnson from 1984, cellist Laura van der Heyden, who won in 2012, and Martin James Bartlett, who was the 2014 winner. Um, And it's just a very casual interview with all of the winners, um, and you really get a glimpse into the memories of their experience. And even though the people change each year, the essence of the competition remains the same and has such a prolonged impact on these musicians' careers and it's just, yeah, it's just a lovely, lovely piece. And, and still do have a huge amount of impact. BBC Musician still has this this, this impact, unlike many other competitions actually. I mean, mm. has done from the start. I think the BBC was slightly surprised when the first competition attracted 11 million viewers for its final back in 1978. Mm. Um, and it's, so it's wonderful to see it. Yeah, because it has the impact yeah. on the musicians who win and who take part, but I think that I remember watching it as a, as a teenager and just being so excited to kind of yeah. follow follow who was going through the competition. So I think it has that impact on the audience as well. It's a feature to make me feel ever so slightly old, I must admit, because I still vividly remember Nicholas Daniel winning in 1980. I still remember him saying that when he won his prize, which I think was £800, he said he was going to spend it on a new oboe. 
Yes, he did. Yes, he did. did. He did say that because there's a documentary on BBC Four. Is there? Yeah. Um, And when he's announced as the winner, he keeps pacing backwards and forwards, not quite sure whether they've actually announced him (laughs) as the winner and him looking at the fellow finalists going, me or is it you? I can't quite work it out. So it's very amusing. As a munchkin at the time, I was aghast that anyone who already had an oboe was going to spend all that money on a new oboe. I couldn't believe it. Well, now he was presenting an award at the BBC Music Magazine Awards as well, so (laughs) all worth it. must have made it. (laughs) It's all worth it. He was. He presented Fenella Humphreys with those instrumental prize um wonderful um so uh jeremy cover cd before we hear all about that let's hear an extract If that doesn't put you into a good mood, I don't know what will. That was the opening of the Allegro Assai Vace first movement of Mendelssohn's Cello Sonata Number no. 2, and it was performed by cellist David Finkel and pianist Wu Han. And they present four works on this month's cover CD. Um, Bach's Sonata for Viola da Gamba and Keyboard Number no. 1 in G, BWV 1027, the Mendelssohn, which we've just heard, Debussy's Cello Sonata and Britain's Cello Sonata in C, Opus 65. And the four works on here are linked because, um, of course, Mendelssohn was hugely influenced by Bach, a kind of great Bach champion, so those two go very well together. And likewise, Britain was a major fan of Debussy's and you find little elements of Debussy throughout Britain's writing, so those two go very nicely together. And there's also a link between David Finkel and Wuhan and BBC Music Magazine, because back in 1996 they appeared on our cover and they also did a recital disc for us then, and it was when they did that they decided they might try and make a thing of setting up their own music company called Artist Led and this was the spur which kind of spurred them to do it. So this is a nice sort of 20-year gap between the two discs, but there's been a big story in between because Artist-Led has been a big success. It has, and it was one of those sort of pioneering labels that gave power to the to the artists themselves. So one of the first labels that sort of said to artists, what do you want to record? You know, um, you know, they could find sponsors, they could find the support they wanted, and artist-led would provide the expertise and record it for them and distribute. Actually, m- most importantly, get it out there because mm-hmm. that's the big thing. Anybody could go and record their own CD, but actually it uh, distributing it to, to, to shops, exactly, and making sure that magazines like ours review them and listen to them and take note of them, that's, that's the tricky bit. And you hear, I mean, the, there's a lovely range here because it's kind of 300 years worth of music. Um, and David Finkel and Wuhan, they're actually a husband and wife duo, but they've also been performing together on stage for absolutely years. And it kind of really shows on the interplay of the, the two instruments. And they specifically chose here works in which the piano and the cello have an equal role. It's not cello accompanied by piano. There's a sort of, you can really hear the two voices kind of working with each other. And can I just say as well, I think it has a really lovely CD cover with this kind of spiral staircase effect. It'll look very nice on yes, your CD shelves. meant to imitate um, the scroll <laughs> of a cello. Of a cello. Yeah. So thank you very much, Jeremy. Uh, Rebecca, before we hear um, 
all about recording in the month. Shall we hear something from it? What yes. Shall we, what shall we hear? So let's have a listen to the Allegro Combrio of Symphony Number no. 3 in F by Brahms. That was the Allegro Combrio from Brahms's Third Symphony, which he actually wrote in 1883 when he was in a spa town in Wiesbaden. Um, and this is a track from our recording of the month, which is a disc of all four symphonies by Brahms, um, played by the Scottish Chamber Orchestra and Robin Ticciati. And it's actually their final disc together while he is their uh, principal chief conductor. And this was they decided to to end it with these four Brahms symphonies beautifully packaged and beautifully beautifully recorded and they've recorded Schumann and Berlioz before together very successfully and then over two weeks in Edinburgh's Usher Hall they turned to these four symphonies and I think even just that extract you can hear that the wonderful sound they've got is a kind of sort of a chamber orchestra feel but sort of bigger canvas than that and also these um late 19th century horns, they use smaller board trombones, so it's very transparent, very kind of alive, the sound. It's a wonderful way for them to kind of finish off their partnership together. I, I don't know if some of our listeners may be kind of regular Radio 3 evening concert listeners, and they they, they had the final their final performance in Edinburgh together with him as, as chief conductor, and it had such an sense of occasion. You could, um, It's a bit of a cliche, but you could kind of feel the warmth between the players and him and the audience, and it just it was wonderful. On that occasion, I seem to remember, they played Vorjak's Ninth Symphony, not Brahms, but um, he's done great stuff with the orchestra. He really has. Yeah, it seems like such a productive and positive partnership. And just like they just really love exploring the music and seeing seeing what they can do with it. I think that really comes across. But I understand he's going to continue to conduct them on a guest basis, isn't he? Oh, I would have thought so, yeah. Yeah. And as the jingle fades away in the style of parry, we bring ourselves indeed first listen. So this is the chance where all of us have to bring a recording that's really sort of interested us in the past few weeks to the table. So Freya, what's um, caught your ear? Um, so this is the the new disc from Gwen Crescens with the Brussels Philharmonic, um, and it's a disc of Piazzolla and Galliano concertos for bandonian and accordion. Um, and it's on Warner Classics. And I cannot get enough of this disc. I have had it on repeat all weekend. Um, so, yeah, it's these two concertos accompanied by a couple of little miniatures for accordion and bandonian. Um, and it's just the most fun. It's really amazingly orchestrated. Um, both concertos, works. they work so well together. It's really dramatic. It uses lots of kind of extended technique, but not in a... It's a very kind of accessible disc. Um, and actually, the... Um, the, the accordion and bandonian aren't necessarily even the high points of it because the, the string playing is amazing as well. I just, I think it's 
just I was so unexpected by it. I reviewed it for our brief notes section of the May issue. So you can read my views on it there. Well, let's hear a bit. fun i suppose the uh, dexterity is something that really grabs me about that and i and i love the fact that you can clearly get a sense of the expression being done with sort of the body the whole body you know as they sort of push the mm. accordion the bandonian together you, know, you get a real sense of everything breathing together yeah i'm very jealous i bought myself an accordion a few years ago and i still can't play it because i don't have any arm strength so i'm very jealous of it is it quite heavy oh my god it weighs a ton really? yeah okay. also, and you need very big hands no i'm <laughs> i'm not suited to it my dad had an accordion, but we found it moth-eaten in the cellar one year. So, so you're not going to be picking thankfully that, that up that today. Thankfully, the end of his accordion <laughs> career. Um, I'm going to move on to my uh, choice, actually, which is... Um, I think we should hear... Um, actually, no, we won't hear an extract, because I want to do is describe a little bit first. This is called Tears of the Resurrection, L'Arme de Résurrection. Um, it's basically a story of the resurrection, uh, with the works of two composers sort of stitched together, if you like. So we've got the motets of Johann Schein, and sort of the narration of Heinrich Schutz. Um, it's all so beautifully sung and performed, uh, but there's, an, there's a real twist here because there's a Lebanese singer called Georges Abdallah who is sort of included in the mix to provide an Eastern inflection to the story. So you have sort of the Byzantine tradition and you have the sort of Western tradition really sort of melding, and it works so beautifully. It's, it's very moving when you first hear that they're doing this you think gosh this could be something that's a bit awkward it's not it's entirely natural hear for yourselves Such a beautiful, beautiful singing voice. Um, this recording is on Alpha and uh, it features La Tempête conducted by Simon Pierre Bestion. I just think it's such a magical sound. It's really atmospheric, isn't mm. it? I was listening to it on Sunday. I was actually in, in a coffee shop writing and I had to put the headphones on and just the whole of sort of the world today just completely melted away and I was completely transported by this, actually. Mm. Wonderful. Jeremy, what's your choice this month? Right, well, I'm still in BBC Music Magazine Awards mode here. Um, 
two years ago in the 2016 BBC Music Magazine Awards, we awarded Newcomer of the Year to a wonderful quartet called the Schumann Quartet. Now, they're actually called the Schumann Quartet because three of their players have the surname Schumann. But now they've now released their second disc, which is called Intermezzo, and it features works by actually Schumann and also Mendelssohn, plus another work by Ryman, Arabert Ryman, who's a contemporary German composer. And then finally, um, six songs by Schumann, which have actually been transcribed for voice and string quartet by Ryman. And I'd like to play one of those now, which is called Der Gärtner. Right, well, that was the Schumann Quartet, and they were joined there by the soprano Anna Lucia Richter in Ryman's arrangement of Schumann's six songs, and that was Der Gärtner, which means the gardener. Um, the set as a whole, actually, it starts off fairly maudlin. It actually begins with a song in which you hear Ophelia drowning, um, and then it kind of ch- gets a bit chirpier after that. But it's a lovely disc, this one, because um, their first disc, um, Landscapes, was... Um, applauded partly because it was really imaginative combi- combination of Mozart, Verdi and Ives. And here again, they've been very imaginative in their programming that you've got the bookends of Schumann and his contemporary Mendelssohn. They're great enthusiasts of each other's music chums. And then this kind of two pieces, kind of a modern arrangement of Schumann and Ryman's own, Ryman's own Adagio, Zum Gedenken and Robert Schumann, which is, although it's based on Robert Schumann, is clearly a contemporary work. Well, I remember um, meeting the Schumann Quartet a couple of years ago at the awards and they were a really fun bunch. It's really lovely to see them carrying on and doing some great recordings. Yeah, um, I look forward to hearing I just that want one to add, a lot. One, add one thing to my appraisal here is that they, this disc does also contain the worst sleeve notes I have read in a very long <laughs> oh, no. time. Yes, I want to wage a war against pompous sleeve notes and there is a classic example here. It begins, recordings are often dismissed as dead. That sometimes reflects a reactionary mindset. Sometimes the artist's own attitude is at least partly to blame. If all that matters is preservation, that is. The present recording could not be further removed from a mere veneration of the ashes and it carries on in that mode for page after page after page. Now, this is repertoire here, which not everyone will know. And if you want to introduce people to new repertoire, don't do it in language like that. Mm. Well, I saw a press release the other day that quoted Confucius. So um, (laughs) thankfully it didn't make it into the uh, sleeve notes themselves. Rebecca, um, better sleeve notes, just as as good music making, though. (laughs) Excellent music making, excellent sleeve notes as well. Um, So I brought along a disc on the Shandos label, which is of the Polish composer Grazina Basowicz, who is one of the most significant Polish composers of the 20th century. She's very prolific, very individual, wrote in all sorts of genres. And uh, Shandos has been doing a great series of her music. This is the sixth album, I believe I'm right in saying, of her music. Um, She did violin concertos, violin sonatas, this disc features the Silesian Quartet, who've also recorded her seven string quartets. 
And this particular disc has the two piano quintets from 1952 and 1965. And then these two quartets she wrote, uh, one's for four violins and one's for four cellos. And I just really adore her music. I think it's very moving, very sparky, very well crafted, really varied. And um, the two piano quintets, I guess, are the bigger sort of statements on this. I've actually chosen a bit from the quartet for four violins, which she wrote um, for students, but it's a really lively, engaging piece, a bit folky um, in parts. Um, And this is from the first movement. rather fun isn't it it is isn't it yeah it's <laughs> got a real dance flavour to it I have to say unexpected kind of yeah it's terrifically played I mean the, the, the synchronis- synchronisation of the, 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 those violins the recording quality is very good as well yeah yeah they produce these really beautifully actually and it's got a lovely cover this um, colourised image of um, from Poland in the late 60s and yeah the sound's mm. great this disc aside where should we head for more back of it what sort of works do you suggest well, I would get, say go to her string quartets, um, and there's also uh, recordings of those on Naxos. The Lutislavsky Quartet recorded them. They're very good recordings, actually. Um, so, yeah, I would say probably the violin concertos and string quartets. Excellent. Done. Well, that brings us to the end of the uh, May Issues podcast. Don't forget the May Issue with all the winners of the BBC Music Magazine Awards is out now. And visit us at www.classical-music.com where you can read about, again, all the winners and you can also um, read lots of reviews and all sorts of other bits and pieces. So it's goodbye from all of us. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.